Kura Patawita. Welcome to the 14th episode of Memories in the Key of Life, where we reflect, dissect, inspect, and give respect to all of the moments of joy, frustration, and humor we confront every day. And we do it with a bit of music, and if you're lucky, a choice chunk of poetry, a very short story, or an abbreviated pontification, such as... My view is that our creative impulses often originate out of personal moments of both heavenly joy or excruciating hell, and that attempting to attribute them to God's sense of humor doesn't work unless you're Bob Dylan. You composed this episode's featured music called Theme and Variations when you were going through a very rough patch. What can you tell me about that? Well, Theme and Variations was composed at a time in my life when my daughter with autism was very aggressive and out of control. My marriage was failing, and I decided to study classical music composition with a local composer. None of that ended well. My daughter wound up in institutional care, and I separated from my husband. But I did finish this composition and performed it live. Well, it so- sounds like you won out in the end, or, or did you? Well, the performance was well-received, but during the rambunctious applause, I felt like an imposter. Why? Why is that? At that moment, I realized a music career was not what was important to me. I quit my lessons, I quit music, and I went into hiding for about six months the day we put her into residence. So, wait a minute, the performance was a success. It had to have confirmed your your virtuosity, your value as an artist, but uh, how how did you come to the conclusion music wasn't your career? Uh, Well, the details of the truth would make for a really good gravy movie, but the essence of the story is that my married composer, teacher, mentor, and I were kind of spiraling into a crazy affair, of which both my husband and his wife were aware. Whoa. After the performance, he told me I should divorce my husband and put my daughter in an institution so the two of us could become musical partners, lovers, with his complicit wife. Oh, my. (laughs) His comment disgusted me. And I was horrified by the position that I suddenly found myself in So I ran away and hid for about six months to sort of think about it and and straighten it all out in my mind and heart. Fortunately, my adoring husband has an exceptional capacity to forgive. He, He still jokes about it, saying, God sent us to our separate corners to think about what we had done. So there you have a hint of the private drama that informed my decision guilt being a prime motivator, and a real authentic love for both my husband and daughter that in the end I decided um, was worth working towards and I didn't, I didn't want to give that up. But I think all life-altering moments 
redefine destinies. My defining moment was when the applause went thunk inside instead of da-da-da, da-da-da. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, that's, a, that's a hell of a realization. <laughs> Why do you think the applause did go thunk? Why, why couldn't you just accept the accolades as confirmation of your level of, of artistry, your, your virtuosity? Why not? In reflecting back on it, it is clear to me that my mother was, in the 1950s, was a precursor to the little big-shot parent of today. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to be another Leonard Bernstein, and I already knew that by the time I was five or six. But as I got older, especially as I hit adolescence, uh, I just found myself grossed out by puffed-up egos. And, um, and I didn't particularly like musicians who were all obsessed about their, their um, virtuosity. I, I, you know, I had it, but I didn't, I didn't identify with it. So, but now I can just laugh about it. <laughs> well, but, but it sounds to me... Like you continue to be turned off by puffed up egos. Is that the case? Don't get me wrong. I truly believe in the importance of uh, developing one's abilities and strutting your stuff, but um, not at the expense of others, number one. And who who was I for performing for uh, and why? Um, my mother needed to feel important. That's what I came to the conclusion of. She felt like a failure. And so she was attempting to live vicariously through me. Um, and in that moment, I saw how messed up that was. I realized I needed a whole lot of therapy. I love my daughter, and I love my husband. And even if they both had and still have dependent-type personalities, it was and still is my personal work to learn how to set and maintain healthy boundaries. So there's a lot of learning in that for me. So finally, now, I have successfully raised my daughter and worked with people with disabilities as a music therapist for the past 30 years. And um, I actually prefer a life of service to a life of narcissism. So um, I think I finally have enough humility to balance my pride with appreciation for all life and its awesome expression. And without further ado... Let's dive into the awe-inspiring expression of your composition, Theme and Variations. Thank you. 
this work of yours is just superbly lush and simultaneously delicate. It speaks of pain and regret. It offers a prayer. It kind of expresses hope and humility, yet it insists with an understated, undeniable strength. I, I mean, I know it took years of work to attain that degree of virtuosity, but it was impelled by an inherent talent, I, I sense, that let, leads you to find uh, just the right combination of notes, where others would have probably searched with frustration for, for hours and hours, like Mrs. Fenwick, who easily found what was needed to save the world. It happened eight years ago, on a warm summer evening in July, in the most secure, deepest underground bunker operated by the ITC, the International Time Council. Seven men from different countries who were on shift that evening were facing the end of the world. The ITC is the managing body of the Doomsday Clock, which controls the terminal reactor, also known as the Last Bomb, its name needing no further explanation. Something had gone very wrong with the arming circuit, and a five-minute countdown had begun. Discovering that the worn contacts on a dime-sized relay called a Toridium Grid was the culprit, they breathed a sigh of relief. Sure, they had a replacement in the relay storage vault in the corner. So they tore through the vault, shoving collister diodes, varivolts, coaxions, and traxial linkages aside in their search. They looked behind the intactic conductor assemblies, the resistor multipliers, and the stack of Gabler amplification contacts. Two minutes till detonation, when Mrs. Fenwick came in with a stack of files to be sorted and asked what they were so frantically searching for in the vault. Where's the pteridium grids? I could swear they were in here the leader of the group uttered in a cold panic. Mrs. Fenwick put her files down and calmly walked to the vault, where she reached behind two varivolt coaxions and brought out a package of four pteridium grids. With 30 seconds left, the part was replaced, and the men left the room, congratulating themselves on having saved the world. So then she went back to sorting her files into nice and even little piles, and her face broke into a few smug little smiles because she'd used a tool most women possess to find pteridium grids and to straighten the mess, always left by men who search in vain to find that doodad so sure they left behind. 
It's a kind of radar, married scientists confess. Their wives can find things for men in distress as they move, toss, shove things out of the way to find that thingamabob they claim to have put away. Honey, where's the... is the question that turns that radar on, and if you add, I know I put it there and now it's gone, it will evoke an eye roll of tired exasperation as she reaches in and finds it without hesitation. And the doohickey you swear you put in that drawer, she'll find it so easily, just like she did before. She'll find that doodad, the dingus you stashed, you dug through the cabinet and went through the trash. She'll find it right away for her. It was easy. It was right there all the time, dear, she says, light and breezy. Because men have a blindness where we miss the obvious. We're hunters, often hampered with hurried cockiness and a bit of sloppiness. Impatient searchers, always in a hurry, used to keeping things in a hustling flurry. There's stuff we often seem to misplace that makes us better humans instead of rats in the race. Like the impulse to show we really care with a gentle touch or a caress of the hair. A woman can find where you put that, I swear. Find it inside you in that self-protective layer. Or the goodness you had buried deep in a hole, she'll find it. Pull it gently to the top of your soul. And the smiles you once used to light up a room that are now replaced with that expression of gloom. So if you wake up one day and you just can't find the thingamajigs or the pteridium grid that really defined the man you once were, you've looked, but he's lost, take a chance. Ask a woman at no extra cost, a Mrs. Fenwick of your own. She'll easily find that missing part and save your world from doom and give you a new start. All I can say is thank God for Mrs. Fenwick, who found the Toridium grid, and thank you Monica Gordon in Flicktown, Pennsylvania, Ronald Helganese in Newland, Vermont, and Tina Klinitsky in Braxton, Montana, for being such loyal fans and emailing us your positive thoughts. And if you like what you hear, drop us a line at memories in the key of life, all one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. And if you don't, well, so be it. All that matters is that we love what we're doing, how we're doing it, and we're having fun. So if you are too, visit again. And don't forget, your memories are in the key of life.